Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. I'm so excited today. Chris Hadfield, astronaut extraordinaire, is on the show, but not only an astronaut, he's also a social media Chris, I don't know if I would call you a genius, but you, you, you're one of the most, you're probably the most followed astronaut on the internet, would you say? Yeah, I, maybe Buzz Aldrin is. He walked on the moon. I, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's millions of people that, uh, that follow along. Um, and it's a real delight to me. You know, I'm, I'm pleased people are interested in, in exploring the rest of the universe and the stuff that I've done so far in life. And you know, I want to I want to get into I want to dive into your career as an astronaut, astronaut and but I also want to ask when you came so so your biggest most popular thing on YouTube was when you were playing the guitar and singing uh Space Oddity and was that what kind of like catapult that got 25 million views uh and you're singing it from the space station ISS uh is that what do you think what catapulted you to social media success? Well, I don't know. It's a pretty slow catapult, James. I, you know, I've been an astronaut for 21 years. And yeah, actually, before I recorded Space Saturday, we had about 800,000 people following on Twitter. So it's, yeah, I mean, it definitely uh, a lot of people saw that that uh, cover of Space Oddity that I did. He, you know, as you say, it's just 25 million people just where my son posted it onto YouTube with all the rebroadcasts. Everywhere I go in the world, it's hundreds of millions of people have seen it. But but I, I kind of ask myself why, I, you know, like why the space station didn't change and, and I didn't change. Why does covering a Bowie tune um, suddenly really get people's interest? And it's something to do uh, with the crossover between uh, fantasy and reality or the crossover between um, science and exploration and art, I guess. But it sure did uh, get a lot of people's attention. I think also, you know, we also we often think of these astronauts as doing these incredibly complicated, almost magical things in outer space. You know, you know, people always say the the magic of today is the science of tomorrow. But here you are doing, and, and you did this with a lot of your YouTube videos and and Tumblr and tweets and everything else. You here you were doing, you you were in this space station and you were doing something we here on Earth like, so it becomes instantly relatable. And just like you were showing, I don't know how you were brushing your teeth on the space station, like that also becomes something that becomes instantly a viral video. Hey, I could brush my teeth in outer space. <laughs> well, I, I, I was in the, the I'm, I'm a Canadian, but I was in the NASA astronaut office for a long time, for over two decades. And so uh, I spoke, I don't know, probably in a thousand schools over those 21 years and, and all over uh, businesses and the United Nations and everywhere. And I really started to get a feel for what people want to know. What what are people actually curious about? What are the things that that everybody comes up to me and and uh, and asks the question of? And so I, I'd resolve. I mean, you'd probably do the same thing if you were going to space for half a year. I resolved to myself that I really want to take advantage of being up there to explain those things to the best of my ability to show people how do you go to the bathroom up there or how what if you sneeze do you do a back somersault or or all the other little stuff that people always ask and and it was really delightful now that there's sort of primitive internet on the space station 
to be able to share it real time and see the enormous way. I mean, some of those videos I made just on what it's like to wring out a cloth of water. It's like, I don't know, 13 million people <laughs> have, have, have been intrigued by it. And, and a lot of them students and it makes them think maybe just a little bit different. So I, I think the, uh, the power of sharing human experience, like we can do with social media, we're just starting to figure out, um, how important that is in uh, in spreading information around the world and helping people maybe think and do things a little differently. Right, because if you figure, let's say uh, the ultimate or one of the ultimate goals of space travel is to see if humans themselves can can live, uh, uh, you know, in either a space station or a moon station or whatever, what you're showing is this is what it's going to be like day to day. You know, these are things that nobody's ever seen before. Yeah, I think there's sort of, I mean, there are a lot of laboratories across the U.S. And I really don't know what's going on in most of them. I sort of have this vague, um, inaccurate, television-driven view of what's going on in, I don't know, Lawrence Livermore Labs or Sandia Lab or Los Alamos or somewhere. But I don't really know. But it's really probably just a bunch of people, you know, having sort of an interesting time and having coffee breaks and discovering things and doing mundane things. And and on the space station, it's the same. A lot of people sort of think it's some weird esoteric robot existence doing experiments that nobody understands. But, of course, it's not like that at all. There's It's just people up there in a really unusual place, seeing the world in a way that nobody else sees it. And trying to run the, the whatever the two hundred experiments on board to the best of our ability, but innately, it's the same as brushing your teeth. The, the people are interested everywhere in what other people are doing. You know what what are people doing under those circumstances? What's it like to be there? And that's what uh, what I really tried to to help people see. And and it uh, it's just been amazing to now just walking down the street anywhere on Earth and, um, and yeah, people come up and say hi. You're probably one of the most recognizable astronauts out there, actually. I, I think I am, yeah, just just uh, anecdotally looking at it. You know, so um, I, I want to mention you have an excellent uh, autobiography. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, What What Going to Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and uh, oh, they, they cut it off on being Amazon. Ready. And being ready for anything, I think, is what it is. Yes, and so – um, I wanted to ask you really about your whole career and kind of certain aspects of that book and things you mentioned, because I think a lot of the advice you apply or, or a lot of the advice you give about being an astronaut applies to starting a business or applies to competence in any endeavor someone would want to uh, try. And I also sense an element of of the philosophy of stoicism in um, in the book and how you conquered the different – uh, problems that you faced while while on your path to being an astronaut. You know, well, I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. It's, I, I mean, looking at your background, James, you've had some uh, some uh, ups and downs and stoicism as well. I think I'd be happy to talk about that also. But the, the book, I, I'm I'm glad you had a chance to look at it. I'm, it's in oh, 20 I've read the whole thing. It's a great it's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's in 20 languages already, and, and uh, you know it's a bestseller all around the world. So it's it's really weird to see something that I created uh, when someone mails me a copy of it in in Chinese or Korean or some language I can't even read one character of. It it's it's it shows both the size, the, the huge variety, but also the uh, um, the tiny, close, uh, interconnected nature of the world. It, it's somehow delightful. To, uh, to see the book spreading around the world as an idea. Well, you know, thinking about it that way, it, 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 it sort of all of a sudden brought to mind a different question for me, which is if you look at the human species, we've always been trying to explore the next space. You know, the next, you know, for instance, how did, how did people with no heating cross negative 60 degree Siberia to Alaska and then just 4,000 years later populate from Alaska down to South America. I sort of see space exploration as almost like the next, you know, step in our evolution as a species. And so we're all kind of fascinated by someone who can articulate what it's like to be on that frontier. 
Yeah, James, you know, what's intriguing is when you're floating at the window of the space station and, and you go around the world every 92 minutes. So <clears throat> so you see the world in its completeness uh, on a, 16 times a day. And you, but you think about exactly what you're saying there. You, you picture as you come across um, the big rift valley of Africa and you picture those very first people um, we're, we're thinking maybe a million years ago that uh, that started walking out of there and that became Java man. And then 80,000 years ago that, that settled in Australia and became what it, what is now the uh, the Aboriginal people there or 50,000 years ago and started heading up uh, into Europe. And then 20,000 or so years ago crossed into North America and started settling all the way down to the southern tip. And because you see the world so fast, you can't help but picture what the exploration was like for them compared to the exploration trip that uh, that we're on as astronauts. The the link between the two is is just pouring in through your eyes, and, and so it's really palpable. And we talk about it and and how it is that human beings explore, and how the technology really becomes uh, the limit of it what you know how do we do did we invent boats yet how do we navigate how do we how do we live in a place that has a less friendly environment than than central africa and what have we what have we done to allow civilization to flourish it it all pours underneath you as a constant kaleidoscope and and you really start to see the entire history just just right there below your feet yeah because if you think about it the the need to get into space, the desire to get into space almost came before uh, the problems that we now solve by having space stations and satellites and so on. And and you indirectly describe this in your book. You, you said your first inclination, your desire to go to be an astronaut started when you saw Neil Armstrong land on the moon. So you were you were nine years old. You didn't think, oh, okay, I'm going to do this very sophisticated experiment uh, 30 or 40 years later. You thought to yourself, I want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, when you, when you talk about exploration and, and those steps, it's intriguing to me that if you watch how an infant develops, um, it, it's, it's curious that we learn how to walk way before we understand basically anything. We get the ability to way before we get common sense or, or we, we get any sort of perspective on how things works. We, we've, I don't know, this, the whole evolution process has, has shown us that we kind of need to go have a look and go try stuff and stick it in your mouth and rub it between your fingers and sit on it. And, and then you start to understand it. And then you start to encompass it into your, your, your comprehension of common sense. And that pattern of what a, what a one-year-old does is is really repeated in everything we do. As you get older, you take trips, place you try things out. We we send people to the furthest reaches of the world, and now starting to leave the the world, and it inspires people. the The whole idea of these possibilities, uh, you know, that's that's what opens up the mind. And for me, as you say, I was nine years old when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon, and it wasn't that that I was interested in, in doing. Uh, you know, core of the moon, uh, ancient um, origins type research or trying to understand planetary uh, dynamics, I was just inspired by the whole adventure of exploration itself. It is so innate and fundamental to us. And even though I was growing up in a country that had no astronaut program, Canada in the 60s and 70s, it, it, the fact that people were doing this, that that the impossible was sort of happening right in front of my eyes, it 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 was like a door swinging open, same as a little kid who first takes those steps and realizes they can cross the room. It was just a door swinging open for me to uh, to maybe if I could balance, uh, maybe I could have a chance to go through it someday, and it did not disappoint. It, it was just an amazing sequence of events that that allowed me to fly in space three times. 
So, so that's interesting, the notion of impossibility. So you see this thing on TV that's essentially impossible, a man walking on the moon. Um, previ- you know, for, for a, a, a gazillion years, every species on Earth probably thought that was impossible. And, and you saw it happening on TV. Do you think that changed your notion of what was impossible so that that allowed you to say, hey, I'm Canadian, but it doesn't mean I can't at some point go over to the U.S. and fly up? fly a, a, a rocket to space. Yeah, it, it, um, it, was, it was hugely uh, like permission giving to see that impossible things happen. That morning, uh, on the morning of July 20th, 1969, it was impossible to walk on the moon. No one had ever done it by definition. And by bedtime, after watching it on TV and then walking outside and looking up at the moon, it, it, was, it was sort of like... Uh, you know, in a Rubik's cube, when you're spinning it, and suddenly you get some, they line up, and you go, "Wow, look at that! Things lined up. They sort of clicked into place in my head." I realized impossible things actually happen, and maybe the key to it though was they don't happen randomly. They happen because of how you're you're turning the cube in front of you. They happen because of sometimes because they just barely can, because someone's making them happen through their own individual effort. So it it was like. Uh, someone giving me permission to do something. It, you know, if if someone said, you know, hey, you want to be Superman? You go, well, yeah, well, that's just comic book. But then if suddenly the guy next to you said up, up, and away and flew off and you realized it was possible, that would really change your motivation of how you maybe wanted to do things in your own life. And that's what it was like for me. It was It was permission to start maybe trying to do something that otherwise would be completely outrageous. I, I like how you went from permission to possible to impossible. And it started – like I was amazed when you, you wrote at the age of 15, you got your glider's license. And at age 16, you were starting to fly powered planes. Now, I have a 16-year-old daughter. I would never let her <laughs> fly a powered plane in, in, in the air, like higher than three feet high. <laughs> so what were your parents thinking? Like when you said to them, oh, I'm going to go fly 10,000 feet up in the air now and I'm 16 years old. Did your parents say, oh, yeah, just be home for dinner? <laughs> uh, my, my, my parents always really honored uh, work and curiosity answered. You know, their philosophy, they bought us an Encyclopedia Britannica, which, which in the 60s and 70s, that was the Internet, you know, and we would never have a conversation and leave it unresolved if you could go actually look up the answer. And the beauty of looking up the answer and, and understanding it was then that led to other questions, but it also led to just a slowly increased comprehension and appreciation for the world around us. And it was a farm with, with five kids. So there was always lots of discussion and argument about things. And so when it came to flying, it was like, well, you know, how are you going about it? And what program and who are you studying with? And how are you, how are you, how are you pursuing it? And, and, and it was all, it was formalized through a, 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 cadet air cadet program and so um i they recognized right off that the the benefits had the potential to weigh uh outpower or overpower the risks and and yeah but the the risk is the risk is their kid uh dying in a plane yeah but the other risk james is that uh you will not reach the potential that you're capable of which Mm -hmm. to me is is the ultimate risk, the ultimate loss. If if we sort of just let ourselves be minimized by fear, you know, you you can you could spend your entire life uh, hiding in bed and having the pizza guy bring food to your house, and 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 you're still going to die. And the real question is, what did you accomplish? What did you do? What what things? happened in your life that that uh, gave you joy and satisfaction and maybe help somebody else and i was just uh instilled right as from a kid that uh, to make the most of yourself to recognize that you don't take risks for no reason but some risks are worth taking because they lead to uh, opportunity they lead to doing things they lead to commanding a spaceship and and so i think uh i think i have a lot to thank for 
in just giving me a certain attitude and set of values that that honored um, accomplishment and honored uh, measured risk taking in order to do something that that leads to something worthwhile in life. You know, another person you have to give credit to, and I mean, it sounds like your your parents were incredible, but you you met your wife at the age of eighteen. H- Helene is her name. Yeah, it's, it's uh, her dad's German, so it's pronounced Helena. Helena. So you met her so young, and it seems like every step of the way, she's been with you saying, okay, you've got to take this next step. Like she has been just as much kind of a partner as a supporter in getting you to that astronaut uh, level. And, you know, it seems to me two challenges. One is marrying so young and sticking together through, you know, such a huge uh, path that you've gone through. And then the other thing is um, kind of withstanding the times apart. Like you've spent 166 days in space. Yeah. Like I wonder if you could comment on on her role in in your amazing achievement. Well, sure. Well, yeah. Uh, actually, I met Helena when she was 14. Just the yeah. just a couple of days before she turned 15, we were. Wait, how old were you then? We just got to make I, sure. I just turned 16. So okay, we were in a high school play together, and uh, so uh, we, I think our first date she was 15 and I was 16, and um, we waited six years to get married. But even still, she was just 20 when we got married, and um, and it, it of course. She she remarks to me all the time. There's no way our marriage should have worked out. The odds were hugely stacked against us, but uh, we have both always really uh, respected what the other person is doing. I think is one of the key important parts. Um, I would never describe if someone came up to me and said, "So who are you?" I would never answer the question. I'm a chef's husband. And if you came up to Helena and said, who are you? She would never answer, I'm an astronaut's wife. It's not who she is. It's not how she values herself. She's She supports me. She thinks she's sort of somewhat interested in what I'm doing and, uh, and, and makes sure that there's opportunities for me to get better at it and pursue it. And, but I try and do the same with her. And, and if she wants to go back to school and study law, she did that for a year. You know, try and make sure that we're giving each other as much freedom and opportunity as possible to pursue the things that are independently important to us, but also be ready to support each other when things go badly. And after the Challenger accident in 1986, when the space shuttle so publicly blew up and killed all the people on board, I just thought there's no future to this program. Why I was living in, we were living in Northern Quebec with two and a half little kids and, the third one on the way. And I, and I was like, what am I doing? There's no way I'm ever going to fly in space. And and the program is probably going to ground to a halt here. And so I pretty much talked myself out of, uh, of pursuing a career as an astronaut. I just decided, okay, it was impossible, but that's a really good time in life to be going through uh, life with someone strong and, and someone with, who doesn't just say yes to you all the time or say no to you all the time, but actually someone who's interested in what you're doing and has a different perspective. And Helena, her point at the time was, well, um, we we're not rich, but we're, we're making enough. You know, we, we can, we have shoes on our feet and we have meals every meal and we're doing okay. You're just a lieutenant in the air force, but, um, but we're doing okay. And there, and, we don't need to change anything right away. And NASA, they may choose to start flying again, despite this accident. And on the other side, if you give up on your dreams right now, then that will have a, the biggest repercussion of all. It will always be a, a burr under your saddle. You gave up on your dreams because of whatever, family pressure, the need to be a, a good provider, the need to have some stability. And, and that, you don't get for free. Giving up in your dreams doesn't come for free. And and so we made the measured decision together to stick it out, see what happened. And then amazingly enough, I got selected to go to test pilot school at Edwards and then uh, got a, a tour with the Navy at Patuxent River in Maryland, working as a test pilot on exchange with the with the Navy. And then the program got on its feet and, and, uh, and I got selected as an astronaut in 92. So I if possible, find someone else, I think, in life 
to go through it, who's got strength, who has perspective, who can tell you when you're being an idiot, but who can also tell you when you're being smart. And, uh, and, and I think it's nice to have someone to point out the beauties of life with as, as things go by. My wife definitely tells me when I'm an idiot, but uh, <laughs> one out of ten of those, she tells me I'm smart, so then I feel good again. But <laughs> but I remember, though, what, when Helena was telling you what she was telling you, you, you were considering a spot on Air Canada, you know, taking a job with Air Canada. And that's when she told you, you know, stick to this, to the astronaut thing, even though it seemed like it wasn't there. I really love flying. I, I still do. And, but I, 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 I love the challenge of flying and the complexity of it and why things fly. And, and, uh, I'm an engineer uh, as well as a, a pilot. And, and so for me, heading in the direction of being a test pilot, that was a means to the end. That was a qualification that might allow me to get selected as an astronaut. But it was also a fascinating, challenge for myself and also i think a really worthwhile thing i i helped develop how to make airplanes fly safer and different types of engines and 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 uh, uh handling qualities of airplanes and things and so uh it was for me a really nice melding of the stuff that was important to me and so if i'd gone to air canada which which my dad was an airline pilot and, and both my brothers chose to be airline pilots um, I understand the life. It's stable. It has a good income. It has a level of responsibility and it is flying. But both of us, my wife and I recognized that was not uh, choice A for me or even choice B or even choice C. It was mm. it was one of the things I could do in life. But uh, until we were at a threshold where I had to um, change my direction and give up on a certain set of dreams, then there was no reason to. And um it, it was really good that uh, that we listened to each other. And in this case, I listened to Elena, I think. You know, okay, so, you know, it seems like there was a lot of problems in the way, though, along the way. it's Obviously, it's very difficult to become an astronaut. And you mentioned at one point um, you had a slot with France to basically, uh, I guess, represent them in the astronaut program. But then they gave away your slot, and it was very depressing to, to you. How did you kind of come back from that? Like, how do you get over moments like that where once again you think it might take years for you to recapture something that was so close? Um, I, I think, yeah, yeah. the, the event was um, uh, I we'd been guaranteed a slot to go to test pilot school uh, with the French Air Force, and it's down in the Mediterranean. We were living in northern Quebec at the time in a place that is pretty challenging weather, and and a very different than the city of Toronto where my wife grew up and we had three small kids at home. And boy, the whole idea of moving to the Mediterranean and, and living with a house overlooking the blue seas uh, and, and the winter was mild, it all sounded so lovely and tempting. And then due to some sort of political uh, spat, that slot got taken away and suddenly we were facing another winter in, in northern Quebec. It was It, it was not pleasant. It was not what we wanted to hear. It was not the sequence that we wanted. But we also were mature enough to recognize it wasn't the end either. This was just um, a misstep. This was just a, a boulder in the way that either we could let defeat us or we could just go, hmm, something to go around. And who knows what will happen as a result. Well, what I'm curious is how, and I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but I, oh, I get curious. Funny. What I'm curious is how long did it take you to realize that even though this was not the, the sequence you wanted, that it was a boulder that you couldn't get around? Like, because was it like a day or was it a, a month or a year? Um, well, everything's a gamble in life. Everything worthwhile is a risk. Everything. You, you always have to bet on things coming out the way you want. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, that, you know, that, that hand of cards uh, we lost. You know, we thought we were going to win. We thought we had a terrific hand, but it just it didn't come on that deal. But there's almost always another deal coming, and there's going to be a new new set of cards. And so we looked at it. There, you know, one very painful evening of of disappointment, just like you know a kid at Christmas who doesn't get the the thing they dreamed of, and then some lingering anger and and resigning ourselves to the fact that that particular sequence wasn't going to happen. 
But then you just start looking forward. And if you've given yourself kind of a long-term goal of things that are going to happen, you know, we want this particular sequence of possibilities to happen in our life, then you recognize that it's the day-to-day stuff is variable, but you continue to make decisions that pull you towards that long-term goal of, of maybe someday walking on the moon or flying a spaceship. And this wasn't the only way to get there. And as it turned out, just a, a little while later, I got accepted to uh, the test pilot school, not the one in France, but the one in California, which that was the only way I ever would have been a test pilot with the Navy at Patuxent River in Maryland. And that combination of having flown a tour with the Air Force and with the Navy was absolutely pivotal in me being selected as an astronaut. And so looking back, you kind of go, well, you know, it wasn't the way we wanted at the time, but... Uh, when you look at it in the big picture, it's probably the best thing that could have happened. And you just have to, you know, lick your lips and go, well, that that didn't work out the way I wanted, but I'm not done here. And that wasn't the only thing. And and the two of us commiserated and dealt with it. And I I think within a few weeks, we had had settled back into our normal pattern and just looked forward to what was going to come next. Well, you know, that's interesting because I don't know if everybody always believes that there's another... Uh, hand coming to you. You know, some people, you know, hit an obstacle and then that's it. They they give up. And I don't know if I'm not making a judgment on that because maybe they're right in some cases. Um, like if you don't, if you're 35 years old and you're not drafted by the NBA, you're probably not going to get it uh, to be a professional basketball player. But how, how did you know that there's going to be another hand coming? Because the hand that came obviously was totally unpredictable being a test pilot in California. Right, but at, at no point, I think maybe the, the key thing, James, is uh, at no point did I say to myself, um, if I don't walk on the moon, I'm a failure. What I said instead was, I would really love to walk on the moon. That That is my long-term personal NBA for me. That is me, the starting center of the rockets, is if I get to walk on the moon. But... Uh, but it's probably never going to happen. But what it's going to do for me is, you know, if I just carry the metaphor to a painful level, this weekend I'm going to dribble the ball a thousand times or I'm going to shoot a thousand baskets or I'm going to practice the layup until I can't stand it anymore or I am going to work on my skills um, in this particular subset so that by Sunday night I will be a slightly better astronaut or a slightly better ball player or or someone who has pulled his life in the direction I'm dreaming of. And that's when I'm going to celebrate it. I'm not going to wait until the NBA draft when they go, no, once again, we're not picking you. Instead, I'm going to say, you know what? Friday, I I couldn't sink a layup to save my life. And now one out of three, I sink or whatever. One out of two, I sink. And I think it's the celebration of incremental success that makes the big difference in what you're asking. If you're waiting to win the lottery in order to feel like anything's worthwhile in your life, then you're setting yourself up for misery. But instead, if you if you allow yourself to celebrate each tiny little success, I think it's way more palatable and it's a lot more fun. You just have to change your threshold of what success is. Oh, yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. You have um, you actually have a beautiful passage in your book. Um, where you say, if I, if I can quote you, uh, if you start thinking that only your biggest and shiniest moments count, you're setting yourself up for failure most of the time. So to yeah. me, everything counts. The small ones, the medium ones, the successes. Um, so, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about that in a different context. So reeling ahead uh, past a couple of space stage, uh, past a couple of trips into outer space, but before your big trip, you're in 2011, you're going for the ultrasound to determine if you um, basically meet the medical threshold for uh, an extensive space trip, you know, outer space trip. And uh, you were worried, you you and your wife were worried about whether you were going to kind of pass this ultrasound. And if you didn't, was this, you know, how would you continue? Uh, would you, you were worried you were going to lose your sense of purpose. So uh, do you think then you would have been able to recapture that sense of purpose if you had failed that ultrasound? You know, James, that was a real uh, watershed in life for my wife and I, in that um, 
uh, I, I'd had a, a medical thing. It's written up in the book, but I, I it was you know kind of an old thing from what had been my appendix out when I was 12 years old, and and it led to I needed some arthroscopic surgery to go in and, and release a little web of stuff. But we'd had the surgery done. Everybody was happy, and then the conservative nature of medicine and the huge expense they were they were risking on putting me up on the space station. The doctors weren't convinced that the problem was solved, and it all came down to one day, and as you say, this one ultrasound test. And the ultrasound is in downtown Houston. So I had my wife and I had to drive from the Johnson Space Center down to the medical center downtown. So there's a, about a 30 or 40-minute drive. And we realize that when we drive back, this, this is going to be decided. Our life is going one way, which is for me to go command a spaceship, or our life is going the other way, which is I'm never going to fly in space again, and basically we're going to go home. And so what would you discuss on that drive? And what I thought was the most worthwhile thing to say was, let's visualize that it goes badly. Because if it goes well, it's easy. So let's just make the assumption right now that the result is negative, that I don't pass the ultrasound, that there's some sort of suspicious internal thing. What are we going to do? Who are we going to phone? Well, who's the first person we're going to phone? And what are we going to do next? And what is it that is that is going to be fun? Should maybe a real good time to go back to university because as a test pilot, flown astronaut, I can I can probably go teach. I can probably work as a test pilot, university instructor. Or and plus, I said out loud, I've already flown in space twice. I've been a test pilot. We are not going to become defined as that poor guy who failed his medical uh, and didn't fly in space for the third time. Instead, we're, we should be triumphant. We've already done something that is almost impossible, flown in space twice. And if we don't fly a third time, that's kind of our decision, whether that's a failure or not. That's really just an event of life. And so we actually took concrete steps and said, if we fail this, uh, I'm going to phone these three people to tell them the news, and then we're going to go home, and then we're going to start thinking about moving back to Canada and start looking at universities and just basically set up a plan. This is what we're going to do if it goes badly. And it probably will go badly because, you know, medical things you can never count on. So when the doctor put the ultrasound sensor on my belly and was looking and suddenly uh, almost miraculously saw what we hoped he would see, which was that everything was was looking and moving normally. It was it was almost more of a surprise than anything. It was it was obviously a huge sense of relief and a sense of of luck and delight. But I, I we had actually gotten ourselves mentally ready for the most probable bad thing to happen, and and start to come to grips with it, and not just sit there with our fingers crossed. And then be overwhelmed with the with with the disappointment, and you know it, it was kind of a big moment in our lives. But it, it, in a, in an exaggerated fashion, it's kind of how we treat everything. The same way is have a look at what's liable to go wrong. Think about what we're going to do when those things go wrong. Get prepared for them, and then if things go well, life becomes a pleasant surprise rather well, than rather than a sequence of disappointments. Well, you know, and I also think you did one other thing, which is um, you also celebrated the successes. So you said, look, we already did what we set out to do um, initially, which is you became an astronaut, you went into space, and and then you, you kind of, uh, you didn't just say, okay, if the ultrasound works, I'm going to go into space. If it doesn't work, I'm going to do this. You kind of diversified your outcomes. You said there are many possible positive outcomes out of this as opposed oh, to just one sure absolutely and and it's easy it, the easiest thing in the world is to be cynical and negative of course it, it's the it's the simplest answer to almost any situation but i think being deliberately uh and resourcefully positive is, is a better way to go through life and and uh in that case but, but it's funny you say that you say uh because at the same time, you say with the ultrasound, you were you you said you said let's plan on the worst happening. So 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 reconcile that with going through life being positive. Well, no, no, not not planning on the worst happening. Visualizing failure. Visualizing things. I mean, things always break. Things always right. go wrong. 
but how you react to them is kind of up to you. And so when you say it's the worst, that that's a judgmental measure applied to just a thing that happened. And, and, you know, the worst would be that one of us died or something, because then you're out of options, but we, we still have loads of options and there's lots of good things that happened to our, in our lives already. And, and so it's really just a matter of putting yourself in perspective and then looking at what might happen. And then how can we, Make that as good for ourselves as possible. How can how can we do the things that still give us a sense of satisfaction and pride and joy, given whatever the set of circumstances are? Don't don't go all negative on what might have been or or whatever. In, instead, um, anticipate things not going perfectly, but but don't gripe about uh, things that that didn't happen the way they were supposed to. And I mean, I'm not perfect at all, and and I, I have pangs of regret and uh, and uh, you know frustration sometimes at how it goes. But I've been really lucky in life, and, well, and I've seen I've been around the world 2,600 times. <laughs> My wife and I have raised three kids. I've I've uh, you know uh, I've played music with with bands that I should never have played with. I've I've just I've been extremely lucky at the events of life as well. And I think being able to kid yourself and, and recognize just how fortunate the actual life has been, that it helps you um, get over the, the transient disappointments and, and keep everything in, in its correct balance. Well, well, you say, even in the book, uh, a funny thing happened on the way to space. And you, you kind of, you kind of add to that. You, you learned how to live better on earth. And part of that was by, always in every situation anticipating in advance what problems could arise and you 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 then kind of veer from that into also uh you know leadership like you describe there's three types of people on a team a negative one a zero and a positive one and you say sometimes it's very positive to be a zero because that makes you extremely observant about what problems could ever arise if you were a plus one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I uh, it was something I thought of a little later in life because when I was a 25-year-old fighter pilot, I was completely sure I was a plus one at everything I did no matter what. And that and, and but you need a level of confidence to 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 be trust I mean I was intercepting Soviet bombers in North American airspace with a fully armed F18 um when I was in my mid 20s and Whoa. so you have to know what you're doing and have confidence about it but it occurred to me uh, a few years later watching the behavior of others that when you come into a situation even though you are confident in what in your abilities there are always subtleties in a new environment that you miss at first. There, there are um, nuances to what's happening around you that you're blind to you know, at, at first. You walk into an elevator and there are five people in the elevator with you. You don't immediately know everything about the five people around you. You get a quick impression, but you have some mistakes in first impressions. And I realized that rather than coming in and starting to dictate actions immediately, um, you are where everybody around you who is a little more attuned to the environment is going, wow, who is this idiot? They don't even know what they're doing and they're changing stuff like moving pieces on a chessboard before you've even seen where all the pieces are. Um, you are far better served if you. It, it, so in that case, you're not a plus one. You're, in fact, a minus one when you're trying to be a plus. You are far better served to just remind yourself, give myself some brief period of time sort of targeting just to be a zero here. I'm just going to not be a negative one. I'm going to be supportive. I'm going to observe what's going on around. I'm going to use the skills I have to perpetuate what's happening. And then I'm going to be a lot more surgical in doing things that make me a plus one. Give myself the luxury of time to do things right. You, you can't do that if the building's on fire. You know, if, if the building's on fire, you need to act with the best you got right now. But but the building is hardly ever on fire. We, sometimes we just act that way. And, <laughs> and so, so for me, and, and I, I tried to make it in the book as, as simply memorable as I could by using minus one, zero, plus one ideas. And what's intriguing, James, is the majority of people that have read the book and come up to me, they, they, they mentioned that chapter of, of um, plus one, zero, and minus 
one as being maybe the most useful and the most memorable, partially because I, I tried to take a complex idea and make it, you know, easy to remind yourself of through through a simple comparator. But um, a lot of people, I think, just have never quite recognized how how beneficial it can be to to have a better understanding of yourself, a little more clearer reflection and perspective of yourself in a new situation and, and target it first, deliberately say, I'm just going to be a zero here for a little while, and then maybe I can start being a deliberate plus one and and, uh, and help this group along and not just come in and be a, a, a bull knocking down China all around myself and not even knowing I'm doing it. Well, it's a unique um it's a unique perception in our society because we're always aiming like I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best. And and you were even aiming to be the best. But sometimes the way to be like life is a a cycle like a sine wave and you have uh, you always have to be able to survive those valleys. And so sometimes the best way is to focus on being a zero first. Yeah, it, just it, for me I I I do it deliberately well. And part of it it's not necessarily in business. As a, as an astronaut and in a lot of other prof- professions, you're away from home a lot. And I watched my father, who was an airline pilot, he'd go on a 10-day cycle and come back to the household after 10 days and immediately start changing things and dictating things and telling people what to do and kind of just disrupt the whole place. And not recognizing that we had found a way as as five kids with our mom to function, obviously. And it was working. We, you know, the house hadn't uh, fallen down and everyone was getting their homework done. But he didn't have the perspective of seeing his his uh, inadvertent effect on the family by coming back in and, and asserting himself is what he was sure was a big plus one. But everybody else knew this was a big negative one. And so when I came back from extended travel like an astronaut does, I would deliberately on the way home remind myself that the family's doing fine without me, that they've got a good way of working and that I need to be a uh, an observer for a while before I start trying to, to change things and make things, uh, you know, my particular version of better. And I sure didn't do it perfectly, but, but I think it's still a useful reminder and sometimes I get it right. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever like seen a James Bond movie and then afterwards you're feeling like all adventurous and you want to be a spy and that whole thing like like i i I feed off of the things that i watch and read and i'm sure many you do or many people do but like after i read your book i was feeling this enormous feeling of competence like to be an astronaut it strikes me the most important skill is not necessarily whether you can fly a plane or hold your breath or whatever but to be really competent at many many tasks, both important tasks and what tasks that might not seem so important. And that sort of seems like, like the theme of the right stuff as well. Like, I I wonder if you can talk about that. Like what's, what's the, the, your sense of what it means to be competent, what it means to really be an astronaut because, and again, not, not to over speak here, but you even say when you first went up into space, the very first second, you weren't yet an astronaut. You had to be in space for 20 days before you felt like you were finally a quote unquote astronaut. Yeah. You know, people don't uh, really know what astronauts do. Of course. I don't really know what, what surgeons do. I don't really know what, uh, what radio hosts do. I, I have a, sort of a distorted view of it, but I, I don't know for sure. But what astronauts really do is um, spend most of their adult life getting ready for for a vehicle, an extremely complicated vehicle, to to behave in a way that they didn't expect and to and to be the only person on Earth that can solve the problem. That that's what we really do is visualize extremely esoteric and complex failures where no one can solve the problem but us. And so, because they're, you know, Earth, when you're in space, Earth is just a help desk. That's the best they can do, really. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And so, so how do you get ready for that? And, and what it all boils down to is uh, an, an insatiable, uh, permanent necessity for personal competence to always become better. Because even if you completely master uh, some part of it, it, some subtle thing is going to change. They're going to upgrade the software or change the display or 
or there'll be a subtle failure of one little diode and suddenly it'll behave completely differently. All you can do is, is continually try and improve your understanding of how things work. And, and so that is, and it's, it manifests itself different than you might think. Uh, in order to get ready for my third space flight, I worked at San Jacinto College and studied how to be an emergency medical technician and went through all of the simulations of the human body and how to do all of the fundamental skills and get qualified in first aid. And then I went to the hospital in downtown Houston and I worked in the burn ward and I worked in the eyeball ward. I went down into the cadaver lab and I did all basic uh, skills that you might need working on a cadaver. And then I was in the operating room with Red Duke, the guy that declared Kennedy dead. And and then I worked in emergency. And um, and as people came in just off the street, I was uh, sewing them up and stapling them up and intubating them and catheterizing them and all the other things. All of those skills, all of those competencies, just in case somebody else in my crew got sick. And, and that level of, of necessity to gain skills uh, is what astronauts do. It, it is the only way that we can be actually trusted to go leave the planet and fly in space. And, and, and it's, it's fun. It's challenging. It's interesting. I, I can, I, I can uh, f- freeze your mouth and take your molars out if you need, or, or I can take your appendix out. I wouldn't recommend me to do it, but if need be, I can do that. And, and that level of skill, once you have it, it just gives you sort of a, an improved comfort. If, if I'm driving down the highway and I see a car, bad car crash, I know that I can walk up to the car crash with a, a, a more elevated set of, of competent skills than most people as a result of the work of things I've done to my, my life to this point. And, and to me, it just makes me feel more comfortable. I'm not nervous about what's going to happen next because I put a lot of my life into trying to get better at stuff. And I, and I, I, I do it as just a habit pattern now. I, th- I think if you're not studying something at all times to improve your ability to do things, then I, I kind of ask, why not? You know, what, what's the other thing that you're doing that is that is more important than getting better at life? Well, and also it seems like when you're in when you're at ISS and like you say, Earth is all it is is a help desk. You're also trusting that your your co astronauts that are on the space station they've also done the same training just in case something happens to you. Yeah, and and as the commander of the spaceship, we um, of course I work with the training team. I mean, for my second space flight, uh, four and a half years before launch, I went with uh, with the training team to the the company that builds the full scale models of that part of the spaceship, and we told them how to build the models so that they the models would resp- the, the sort of the three dimensional simulations of the parts of the spaceship so that they would act well enough that we could then use them in training and simulation in order to teach ourselves all of the things that might go wrong so that when the real thing happened four or five years from then, uh, we would have all of the competencies and skills necessary. You know, that level of, of interactive preparation is the, is the only way we do the business. And, and, uh, and it, you know, people sort of take it for granted and don't understand it, but that, that's what astronauts and, and, uh, and NASA, that's what we really do for a living. And you have to have those skills on board yourself. And, and they're hard earned. But once you have them, then, um, then the whole thing, not only are you more confident, but, but I think, James, you appreciate it better because you're not all worried about the overwhelming fear of what might happen. But you're, you're kind of calm and appreciative. And you, it, it gives you mental... Uh, maneuvering room to kind of look around and notice how marvelous this is what's actually happening you can disembody yourself and and love what's happening because you're not panicked and overwhelmed and 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 uh, unsure uh, of what you're going to be doing yeah you say you say in the book um i've learned that investing in other people's success doesn't make them more likely to enjoy working with that me it also improves my own chances of survival and success so yeah. and uh, it seems like that's critical to being an astronaut. You, even though you're you're highly competitive, while you're each going for those few slots 
who's going to make it to the space station this year. It, it also means, you know, if you're the one who shows that you care about other people's success, that's going to be noticed. Well, let's say you and I this weekend decided we're going to climb Mount Whitney. You know, it's not particularly high, but it's high. It's not easy to climb. And I just said to you, hey, we're going to climb Mount Whitney. I'll meet you, you know, uh, Owens Valley Friday at four o'clock. Um, instead, if I said, hey, this weekend, let's climb Mount Whitney. So let's get together this evening and start talking about what skills each of us doesn't have yet. And, and what don't we know? And do you know how to repel? And, and what first aid and what gear should we bring in? And let's, let's invest some time in each other's competence. Let's invest some time in learning what you are good at and what I'm good at and what we can teach each other. And then let's maybe practice. Let's go into the backyard and, and climb the, the, the apartment building wall three times. And let's, let's practice one of us breaking a leg and see how we deal with it. And then let's go get drunk together and, and have a good time anticipating the fun thing that's going on. And then and do that for the whole week. By the time you and I set out to climb Mount Whitney, we would, we would be two slightly different people. Not only would we be readier for it, but we would we would have a much better understanding of each other. And when we get to the top of Mount Whitney, we'd have a lot more to celebrate together as two people. And, and that's what I wanted to do with, with the, my crew uh, in the whole space flight. We spent years together training in advance and doing all of those things so that when the actual event happened, you have a lot more room to love it and to, and to, and to relish the joy that the other people are getting out of it. You know, rather than just just enduring something together. You know, it's funny how things are measured in in years, not just in your field, but among the fields of so many people I, I talk to. Like you talk about how in 1986 you were disappointed, but then, but here now we're also talking about 2013. You were in the ISS. Uh, you know, it's so many, and, and how you train starting four four years in advance. You know, with your team, like. People want overnight success so often, and yet real success come is measured in years. Uh, it's funny, too, when you look back at Space Oddity, I've had people come up to me and go, hey, uh, you have kind of a nice voice. Did you learn to play guitar on the space station? <laughs> it just makes me laugh. I bought my first guitar when I was 9 or 10 years old, and I played guitar for 40 years and I fronted bands for 20 years and I taught myself bass and I had a music teacher that taught me to play trombone and bass trombone. And I, I, my whole life, uh, out of curiosity and joy, I, I learned music and, and how to play never knowing where it was going to take me, but always trying to understand a little better and try and learn how to play music with other people and, and try it. How do you how do you sing a pure note? And how do you sing harmony? And and how do you play a, a, an F sharp minor, which at first seems impossible until you figure out how the guitar works. And then suddenly along comes an opportunity where you, you're covering Bowie from a space station, something you never thought was going to happen. We're, but, we're uh, all together I, I, now. A lot of people, a lot of people look at me then and go, "So did you teach yourself guitar? Pick up a little guitar while you're on the space station?" And and it just uh, it. You know, it makes me laugh in that, uh, yeah, I'm an overnight musician success after having practiced and prepared for it my whole life. Yeah, if you think about it, that YouTube video is like 30 times platinum. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're one of the most <laughs> successful musicians on the planet. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. And even, you know, Bowie said it was uh, the most poignant version of the song ever made. And, you know, and, and he really liked it. And, and I, I, I also, I'm realistic about it. I am not the best musician in the world. But if you really want to boil it down, by definition, that would be one person to be the best musician in the world. And, and I'm not the worst musician in the world. That's, that's somebody else. I'm somewhere in the middle, like, like everybody else. I'm, I'm just one of the musicians in the world. And I do some stuff okay and some stuff not okay. The, the beauty of it is, is to love it and to have fun doing it and to, and to notice when fate slaps you in the side of the head and, and, and give it your best shot and see what happens. And, uh, and it was uh, so lovely. But it, it just makes, makes me laugh. People say, oh, did you pick up a little Russian to, to be able to go to the space station? You know, I started studying Russian in 1993 so that I could command a spaceship and fly a Russian Soyuz 20 years later in 2013. So I, 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 thousands of hours studying Russian 
with never any guarantee that I was going to use it. Just just one more skill to to have that might open up opportunities for me in the future. And and so it's funny people come up and go, oh, did you pick up a little Russian? And well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did, now, did you guys when you were up in space there? Did you ever joke around that? You were in your F thirty eight or whatever, uh, fa- F-8, facing yeah. uh, 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 Soviet bombers. You might have been on opposite sides of, of you know, the Cold War. There. Well, sure, we we talk about it all the time, and I mean, there's there's huge tension between what some of Russia is doing right now and and what what the rest of the world is doing. Inexcusable, myopic, uh, destructive, uh, national behaviors by some people in Russia. But but Russia is is hundreds of millions of people, right? And you 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 can't just you can't say when you say America, you don't mean every single American. And 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 one thing I've learned living in Russia, I was NASA's director of operations in Russia and learned the language. Um, there is so much more to like than to mistrust or fear. And the fact that I was a NORAD pilot during the Cold War ready to defend North America against attack and actually racing out many, many times over the Atlantic day and night to intercept Soviet bombers that were either just on their way to Cuba or were, or were practicing cruise missile launches on North America. It was real. It was serious. It was part of the geopolitics that were going on at the time. But that doesn't mean that I need to have a myopic hatred for the rest of my life. Right. All it means was I was trying to be as trustworthy and competent and professionally ready to do my job as I could at the time. But I, when I helped build the Russian space station just eight years later, as a Canadian on board an American shuttle helping to build the Russian space station using the big Canadian robot arm, to me, that was way better. That, that was what we should be doing as people. It doesn't discount conflict. It doesn't discount reality. But it's possible to defend what's important to you but also be working towards what I think are, are, are globally better ideas at the same time. So, yeah, on the space station, we do talk about it. We joke about it. You know, Gennady Padalka, who's up on the station right now, and Scott Kelly, who's up there right now, they were both fighter pilots defending their country. But right now, they are just two human beings uh, exploring the universe together. That's and, amazing. And the two are not necessarily at irretrievable odds with each other. You know, Chris, I, I know you're you're very busy. I wanted to ask you about one more thing, which is you present uh, in your book a very rational argument for the possibility of alien life. Uh, you know, basically saying, you know, there's there's billions of Earth-like planets in our galaxy and there's billions of galaxies. So there is this possibility. Uh, do you think... What, what do you, how often do you think about that? Like, do you think there's ever a chance we could come into contact with, with something? I think I am like, uh, you know, when we first started domesticating animals, maybe 10,000 years ago, and somebody's job was to uh, go out and keep the wolves away from the goats. And they had to do that day and night. And so they had to live out sitting under the big open sky and a lot of those people started naming the stars. They started coming up with the constellations, the original shepherds. And it had to have occurred to them the how small they are under this enormous eternity that, that, that is going around us. And they questioned, how could we fly and are we alone? I'm sure those questions occurred to them. And, and so I'm not at all unique in questioning, are we alone? But we've looked a lot further in just in the last 10 years where we're seeing planets around other stars, thousands of planets, actually knowing for sure, not just guessing, but now we know on average, basically that every star has at least one planet. And with the, with the telescopes we've built in, in the last 10 years, 15 years, we're starting to understand how many stars there are. And, there, there's a number out there like septillion stars, like, hmm. you know, a billion is is two, and then there's a trillion, and there's a quadrillion. You go all the way up to a septillion, which you can't even comprehend how big that number is. And pretty much every single one of those stars has a planet. And to think 
that the only place out of the, the odds of being septillion to one uh, that life could have possibly developed is, is our particular little blue ball, to me, is just is just a, an arrogance uh, and, a, and an ignorance that is comical. But, but then on the other side, uh, we have almost no grasp of, of what a billion years is. You know, it's hard for us to understand 80 years, let alone a billion or four and a half billion or 13 billion. And to think that in our little brief uh, finger snap of time that we're alive on Earth, that, that this is the most important time in the history of the universe and that aliens are sneaking around the planet and, and only revealing themselves to certain people and abducting farmers in Arkansas and stuff. It's just, you know, it's just also... Uh, uh, an, an arrogant, optimistic self-importance. I'm, the odds are overwhelming that we are not alone in the universe, but we haven't met anybody yet to discount it. For all we know, we're the only life in the universe, but boy, every discovery helps us be slightly better informed. And we know that Mars had oceans for millions of years and had fresh water. We know that uh, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Some of them have oceans of water. This asteroid that's in the asteroid belt series, it may have more fresh water on it than Earth does. Hmm. And they have heat. And Mars has the biggest volcano in the solar system. And, and every cubic foot of dirt on Mars has a liter of water in it. You know, we're, I think we're going to be able, through our own curiosity and exploration, just in our own solar system maybe, to be able to answer that question of whether there's even primitive life somewhere else and that'll be a huge moment of self-realization to know for sure that uh, you could answer that shepherd's question of whether we're alone in the universe or not. And that that is almost at the very core of exploration itself. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I've really enjoyed everything you've done in social media, but also I highly recommend your book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, What Going to Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and Being Prepared for Anything. Uh, I benefited from reading the book, so so I hope people read it. It was It's a great read. And, and once again, thank you. Well, thank you very much, James. It was a delight to have a conversation with you. And I congratulate you on the huge successes you've had as well. I feel very self-conscious having just talked about me the whole time. But thank no, you. no, no. I, I, had, I had more questions. So you're, you're more interesting than me. And, so, well, nice, nice to talk. I, I hope we get to meet you in person someday. Definitely. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.